You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now, when you hear that word, submission, and the other word that parallels that, authority, it can sometimes generate uh, reaction. And as one lady put it, contention. Um, And we'll look as to what that word really means, because not only has it been abused, but it has been misconstrued as to what and how submission is carried out and authority is properly carried out. <clears throat> so we're going to look at that this morning and um, I'm going to ask that you do bring forth questions and comments. But I want to go through the text first and then let's see if that answers some of our questions and then we'll address them. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for this uh, time together in fellowship and the uh, corporate worship that we have with you. We ask, Father, that you would enable us to have a more lucid or clear understanding of this doctrine of submission and the doctrine of authority and help us to see from your perspective what your word reveals that we may honor you by uh, living according to your divine order and that we'd bring uh, glory to you through obedience and submission. We just give you thanks now and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, um, probably one of the most attacked doctrines by the uh, feminist movement would be that of Submission and authority. And in the last 300 years, there's been a strong movement of feminism. And in the last half a century, even stronger movement of feminism. Now, much of it's coming from the secular realm, but in the last 40 to 50 years, it's entered the evangelical realm. As we consider... Uh, this doctrine. There's been many books written about submission and authority and uh, many good books by very scholarly individuals. What we want to examine today is what God's Word says and have a clearer picture of what this means. Now, for the youth, I want to premise this study with This is extremely important for you to understand because it's going to affect every aspect of your life. When we think of authority and submission, last week we talked about some of those who are under authority. Now, can anyone tell me who here is not under authority? Good. Okay. Let me ask this question. What authorities are you under? I'll start with the youth. 
you will be someday. <laughs> okay, don't be bashful. I know this is the uh, first part of the class, but would you say that, first of all, you're under parental authority? Would you agree to that? Yes. Okay, would you agree that you're under those of you that are either homeschooled or public schooled, uh, are you under the authority of teachers? Some are looking at me like, hmm, maybe. Well, you are. <laughs> we also have law enforcement authorities. We still have political authorities. We have authority, authority in every realm and even within the body of Christ. There's the order of the church authority. Now, when we consider authority and submission, is this something that we would consider as good or just a necessary aspect that we have to tolerate? It's necessary, but is it a good necessity? Very good. Did you hear that? What Theta said? She said, this is a necessary, it's necessary to have authority. And when I asked, is it good? The response that Theta gave was, if it's exercised properly. And that's exactly true. Authority abused, and uh, especially in the realm of male authority over women, it has been almost used to the point of tyranny throughout the ages. And when Paul wrote this book to Corinth, we have to think about what was going on in the Roman Empire at that time. The authority breakdown was tremendous. We think we have feminism now. doesn't even compare. A study of uh, Roman history reveals that the women feminists at that time they exercised anything they could to compete with men. They competed in uh, events such as gladiator events, which sometimes was to the point of death. They competed in male events of strength in which they tried to and sometimes did defeat men. They cut their hair to look like men. They dressed like men and they disregarded, uh, they considered marriage as some form of oppression. And that of bearing children, they didn't want to do that because it would affect their bodies to the point where that would ruin the way they wanted to look. Does that remind you of anything that contemporarily we see today? Well, it was even to a higher degree in the Roman Empire. So we have to realize that during that period of time, feminism and uh, immorality was rampant. We had divorce rate that was, uh, it wasn't unusual for a man or woman to be divorced 25 times. It just wasn't. And they would do it for any reason. Men were tyrannical to women. And that was the impetus for women to resist that and to try to fight against 
Some took it to the extreme of wanting to combat the men. But what the men did was treated these women so cruelly and so harshly that it destroyed the very order, the divine order that God has for mankind. In our society, it's not much different. We have uh, men that, uh, you take a man that doesn't even, isn't even a believer and he'll know about this concept of authority and submission, but he has a distorted and a perverted view of what it is. So what we want to examine today is what biblical authority represents and what it is not, and how does that affect us. Now, Paul encountered uh, the same heresies uh, that we encounter today, even in the first century the attacks against by feminists against the doctrine of submission and authority. And even in Corinth, there was a great misunderstanding and a great abuse of that authority. Okay, so Paul, he's attacked today by feminists. Some of the books that have come out against the doctrine of submission and authority by uh, leaders in the feminist movement attack Paul in saying this. Paul was bigoted, he was a male chauvinist, and he was teaching out of his understanding and his background of Judaism. And so he tried to quench women by his doctrines. Well, as we examine the doctrines which Paul clearly reveals, it's just to the contrary. Just the opposite of the very attacks that come against the Apostle Paul. So he's often charged with uh, prejudice and even poor interpretation as he brought forth these doctrines. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but um, I want to refer first, if you hold your place there, I want to refer first to the book of Galatians. Chapter 3. Now, the book of Galatians, Paul wrote... And he was trying to show the, the freedom we have in Christ and freedom from the law. And also, <clears throat> he was repudiating the Judaizers that were coming into the church and trying to persuade the believers that they, even though they had Christ, they were still to live under the Levitical law. So he attacked that heresy vehemently. But here's one of the verses that many have gone to to refute or try or attempt to refute that doctrine of submission and authority. And that's in 3 verse 28. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So as we consider that verse and that statement, some could take that and say, okay, we're all equal. Is that a true statement? Men and women, uh, slave and free, uh, barbarian, Scythian, are they all equal? Naturally. Good. Did you hear that? Uh, by nature, uh, yes. Though functionally and positionally, there's a distinction. But here, it's speaking specifically spiritually. In God's eyes, all those who are in Christ are equal. There's no distinction made. Nothing. Men and women, slave or bond, are, there's no inequality within those that are in Christ. Now, if we try to carry this over to the doctrine of submission and authority and using this, it really breaks down quickly. And let's examine it. Paul begins with, <clears throat> there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, in Christ, there's total equality. But in society, was that so? Was in society, was the Jew and Greek on the same place socially or racially? No, not at all. So you see how it's beginning to break down if you try to apply this positionally, I mean, uh, to function rather than the spiritual application of spiritual equality, it starts breaking down quickly because there was a vast difference between the Jew and the Gentile, socially, politically, and racially. Let's carry on. There's neither slave nor free man. Wow. Socially, was there any distinction made there? Absolutely. A slave and a free man. Uh, in that time, uh, slaves were common. Uh, Paul often referred to himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Bond slave was one who willfully dedicated themselves to their master. And that was indicated by a willful commitment, lifetime commitment to their master. And it's referred to as doulos in the original. And what they would do is uh, place the lobe of their ear on a post and they would uh, put a hole in their ear showing that sign of submission and bond slave, which was lifelong. Now, a bond slave... They would put their master first in all things. They willfully served their master. When they got up in the morning, their whole sole goal for the day was to please their master. They didn't eat until they prepared the master's food or helped those that did and made sure that the master had his, his or hers water and they had their food. They would eat last. They would make sure that they took care of all the needs that they were responsible for before their own needs. So that's why Paul often would identify himself as he began 
his epistles as a bond slave for Christ. But was there a distinction socially and economically and in every other way between slave and master? Absolutely. So we cannot use or even attempt to use this text to try to show that this is showing the equality of all the men and women because we are equal as created individuals and we're equal in Christ. And we have to understand something as we examine this doctrine further. Paul's going to show us some things here that should give great encouragement to women because Paul exalts, actually exalts women like they had never been exalted prior in history as he enters these doctrines. Yes. Yes, of course. I'm talking about in the writings. Of course, uh, Jesus Christ exalted women and it was obvious how he ministered to the women and his love for women. So as we look at these doctrines, we'll turn back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to focus in on this text because this text capsulates the essence of submission and authority. Starting with verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. So here we have a divine order. This divine order was ordained and given by God. So we think, well, here's a good way to make a distinguishment between essence, that is the essence of man and woman, the essence of God, and function. And we considered some of that last week. When we consider God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is there any difference in their equality and their essence? None. Absolutely. They're totally one God and three distinct persons, completely equal. But now let me ask this. Is there a difference in the function of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? Is there a submission role within the Godhead in function? I'm seeing nods, okay. Absolutely. When Christ came here on earth, he said, I do nothing but the will of the Father. Everything that Christ did was in accordance with the Father's will. Not thine will, but thine. Not my will, but thine, speaking of the Father. And yet, in essence, for all eternity, God is one and equal. But there is yet a subordination and an authority structure. Thomas. I realize, again, this is bordering on heresy. But I have to ask anyway, your statement, uh, was there any time at any moment that, and the answer is no. So it's kind of, I'm struggling with how that, you know, how, where we're at. Jesus had, was there any time that Jesus, his will was against the will of God? 
Never. And therefore, it kind of is a redundant statement for him to make in that way. I guess that when I'm thinking about, you know, submission, uh, I realize that his purpose was to glorify God, and he did the will of God. And on the other hand, I don't think he had a choice. Okay. Uh, Thomas is bringing up the uh, question as to well, there was never any disagreement between the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. That's true. And they were one in essence, totally equal. So why would we even consider this authoritative structure? God uh, explains this in this text. He sets up a divine order. And let's consider this. Since Christ is the head of every man, he's uniquely head of the church as its Savior and Lord. He's redeemed the church and bought it. He paid for it with his blood. But in his divine authority, Christ is head of every human being. And in Matthew 28, he says, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. So Christ is not only authority over the church, but he's authority over all human existence. So we have a big question here. What's the distinction when we think of uh, male and female that is overcome in, overcome in Christ? What, what is the oneness which the male and female share in Christ in light of Galatians 3.28? The answer to that question is there is no distinction spiritually. Uh, as we consider that, here's the way we can draw some clarity. The spiritual essence of men and women and their functional roles are distinct. Now, we have to notice something here. When Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of a woman. He makes no distinction about the woman's abilities, talents, intellect. He's just showing the divine authoritative structure. Now, when we consider taking that into the church, for an example, and Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, I forbid that a woman would teach or exercise authority over man. So we go, wait a minute. I thought you said over in Galatians that in Christ we're equal. That's true, spiritually. But God, for some reason, has given man the authoritative role. Now, let me ask this question. That authoritative role, does that presuppose somehow that man has an innate, innate value that's higher in abilities and talents and essence than a woman? Not at all. There's no distinction made here. You see, I may be able to teach Sunday school if I have the ability to do so by the grace of God, but there are women sitting in this class who are probably better scholars and better theologians than I. Does that make them any less? 
No. It's just the function that God has designed within the body of Christ. So we have to understand this is not a demeaning of women. When God uses this term head, which is authority over, it's for the complement of the woman. It is for her protection. And it was designed that the man would exercise this authority in the Lord. So that it would be perfect love and a perfect complement to the woman. It is in no way demean the woman because he has authority over her. It actually gives that role and responsibility a greater emphasis. When we think of, and I want you young men to think about this. When you think of marriage, the role that man has been given is awesome. Because when we start looking in Ephesians and examine that text, which you've already studied, we're going to see that men have been called as husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. Now, that may seem like just something we've read and we're familiar with, but do you understand the essence of what that really means? To give our lives for our wives. That isn't talking about a sacrificial death. That's talking about a daily life of submission to the Lord and being unconditionally loving your spouse. Awesome responsibility. And needless to say, we fail at this, myself included, regularly, to live up to that high and divine standard. But our command from the Lord is to do so. So when we think of headship or authority, we are to be in authority under Christ as men and as husbands. And the authority that we exercise over our wives is not tyrannical. We can't live as some kind of a male tyrant trying to dominate our wives because of the result of the fall. I'm getting some smiles over there. That's good. But we're to lovingly guide, protect, oversee our spouses. And the same thing in the headship or leadership within the role of the local church. We're to exercise that authority in submission to the Lord, in submission to his word, and as servants of the Lord, not lording it over, as Peter points out in 1 Peter 5. So when we look at this authoritative role, this word head, kafali in the original, it simply means that God has so structured and designed us as his creation to function in accordance with authority and submission. As we considered earlier today, the submission and authority role, we're all under submission. Now let's take, um, well, let's take, for instance, uh, a grandparent. Now, a grandparent is, if they have married children and they have children, uh, we're not really in authority over our children. 
We saw that in the creation account. The husband and wife are to leave their mother and father and to cleave unto each other. So we know that we're no longer that authority over them. But are we under authority? Well, yeah, as believers, we're under the authority and lordship of Christ. As believers, we're under the authority of the local church. As believers, we're under the political authority or rulers over us. Romans 13, First uh, Peter, Second Peter. There's all kinds of New Testament accounts that show that we are to be in submission to all authorities. All authorities. So, I know we're living in a day and an age where we hear a lot of uh, negative uh, talk and there's a lot of political turmoil going on. But we have to recognize we are under a God-given authority. Now, we recognize also that that God-given authority can be disobedient to God's principles. We see that throughout the entire Old Testament. And we can hate the sin that's perpetrated by those in authority who misuse their authority. But we don't hate the individual. we got to be careful here because we can trans... Uh, we can transfer that disdain for implementing a policy that is sinful and wicked to the individual that carried it out. We're not called to hate those in authority. We're actually commanded to pray for those in authority. Rob. He asked permission. When they brought the king's food, he asked if he could have a different type of food and they let him be tested. And he had that food for a period of time and he excelled in intelligence, work, in every other way. And so they let him have that dietary. He was in submission, even though under a wicked ruler. He remained in submission. God exalted him. The same way with Joseph. Under the Pharaoh, he was falsely accused and falsely imprisoned. And yet he was even submissive in prison to the point where God exalted him in prison. And then when he brought him out, he exalted him right under the Pharaoh. A Jew. The highest position. Yes. Right. When it came to bowing his knee to the Babylonian emperor, he refused to do so. But notice, he was not refusing to do so without also saying, you know, I'll go to prison. You can throw me to lions. You can burn us. But we will serve our God. We'll not bow our knee to another. So the line that we draw as believers when it comes to submission to authority is that where we do not transgress God's word. We don't carry out some anarchy. Jim. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. And the point here that Jim just brought is, uh, gives emphasis that we have to understand whenever uh, a man of God in the Old Testament was commanded or called by a, an authority to disobey God, they didn't do so, but they did not obey that in a way of submission. They were submitted to those in authority, but they didn't deny God and they were obedient to God, even willing to sacrifice their own lives. So that's the examples we have, even in the New Testament in the book of Acts. When they commanded them to go out, they beat them and send them out and said not to proclaim the gospel. Are we to obey man or God? They continue to proclaim the gospel. So they were submissive to those in authority and willing to be imprisoned or suffer the punishment that would ever be ruled over them. But they would not transgress God's word. So in the same way, as we consider the aspect of divine order and submission and authority, we have to recognize that believing women as well as believing men are fully equal on the same plateau. In the function and role, man has been given the responsibility of oversight and authority over the woman in the Lord. Because when Paul gives this teaching, he is very specific about Christ being the head. Man is the head of woman. Man is submissive to Christ. And God is the head of Christ. So that is the authoritative role, part of God's divine order that we have given to us. So, as we consider that and we see that Paul makes no distinctions and it's in no way demeaning to a woman, it's actually designed to enhance and complement the woman if it's carried out in accordance with God's word in the Lord. And where it breaks down is when men, either unbelievers or men that are believers and disobedient, turn that into the role of tyranny rather than being able to complement and encourage their wives under their oversight. So let's consider how these tie together. First, we all have a common call defining us as peers of one another. We're all equal in Christ. Second, we have a particular focus within these primary relationships. We're either servant or submitters or we're overseers or we're head of. But we're all submitters as believers. We all submit to Christ as the head. So, though we have different roles and functions, there is a role of submission for everyone. And all of us are called to that. We as believers, as men and women, as uh, God's children, we're called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. Uh, We're to 
exercise our respective roles in Christ. The Lord calls us to please him through our humility, forbearance, honesty, generosity, tenderheartedness, and we're to exercise that to all others. You see, if we start looking at Scripture as just, oh, this is what it says, and we're looking at this as some ancient writings, rather than the living word that is our authority, it's all going to break down. This is God's design. This is not some male chauvinist that got cut loose from the Pharisee squad and all of a sudden started penning letters. This was God's ordained order. It is given by God and is for the purpose of bringing glory to God. So we have to understand that whether we're a CEO of a company or whether we're a janitor or whether we're uh an apostle, or a new convert, we're all equal in God's eyes. We're all the same. He has given us different function by design, but we're all equal. So when we consider this, when we consider this as we look into Ephesians later, we have to understand when Paul talks about submitting, exactly what that means. Hupatasso. I love that word. We're going to examine that, and I'm sure that the youth have had a closer uh, exposition of that, and we're going to kind of open that up a little bit as we go forward. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And Christ speaking of the Father, he says, And the glory which you gave me, I give them that they may be one just as we are one. John 17:22. So not only are we members of one another as God's children, but what did Christ just say here? And the glory which you gave me, I give them that they may be one just as we are one. We're one with each other and we're equals before God. So we don't make any distinctions in our essence between man and a woman. Rob. Good point. Rob just pointed out that in within the body of Christ, one of the safeties of that body is being accountable one to another. So when there is, uh, in essence, a disregard of God's word, we should have and desire to help restore those individuals and to come alongside those individuals. And that's part of the safety of the body function. And yet, in that, we're all accountable one to another.
Yes, Janice. Okay, well, the question is, in different, uh, perhaps different denominations, there's different roles carried out. In some denominations, and most uh, recently in the last five or six decades, probably more dominant in the last three decades, is women taking the role of authority in various churches. Uh, and when does that cross a line was the question. Well, as we examine this, uh, and you use the illustration of the veil, let's go down through the text and see if we can answer some of these questions. Uh, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Uh, Paul was addressing the Corinthians. Now, there were some cultural practices at that time. Some of the Jews were practicing that of veiling their heads when they were praying are prophesying. And the reason they did that is because of the Old Testament accounts of Moses when he put the veil over his head. But they got that all misunderstood. They misunderstood the reason that uh, Moses had put the veil on his head because he had the glory of the Lord shining upon him and that glory was fading and he was covering that. And so culturally in Corinth, some of these men were doing this. And he says, uh, that disgraces his head. When a man covers his head, that's uh, a sign or indication of submission in some form. So man is supposed to be exercising authority within the role of the church. And this is not in the context when Paul's speaking here of <clears throat> uh, corporate worship service. This is just talking about in public or praying in public. And so he's talking about the still exercising that role of submission and authority. So let's look. Verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesies disgraces her head, <clears throat> for she is one and the same as the woman who has her head shaved. Those that had their head shaved at that time in this culture were prostitutes. And what Paul is saying there in this culture, which doesn't transcend and some people have carried this into cultural practice today, which really isn't necessary. But at that time, Paul was addressing that the women, rather than identifying with the pagans who were not under submission and authority because of the feminist movement, Paul was showing that they were to wear a covering. Later on, he said that their hair is a covering, which is a glory. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. 
But it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Let her <clears throat> cover her head. So, for a man ought to, not to have his head covered since he is the image and the glory of God. Now, here is where we start getting some more doctrine on the essence of man's creation and God's created order. Did you notice what Paul said here? Since man is the image and the glory of God. He doesn't say that about the woman. But what does he say of the woman? Very same part of the verse. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Many have misinterpreted this text, and it's really hard to understand sometimes because of the cultural practice. And some have taken this whole authority structure and put it in a camp of cultural. That Paul was just speaking culturally at that time because some of the women were acting out in church and during the assembly of their worship. And Paul was just trying to bring some order. That's not true. That transcends uh, time and culture. The order that God has given us has nothing to do with culture. Cultural practices that Paul was addressing with the head coverings, yes. That was indeed going on at Corinth at that time. So we have to understand historical cultural when we exegete a text such as this. We also have to understand the words because also some women feminists have gotten scholars who use cultural hermeneutics, that is, they use current philosophy to interpret, and they've interpreted this word uh, for head, which is authority, to kahali, or kahali, to the word to mean uh, origin or source. They've tried to retranslate that, and it's never used in this context ever in the earlier documents. It's always used as authority. So where does it cross the line? The question was. When we have a woman in a place of teaching, it will in the body of Christ, it will be that of teaching women and teaching children. And that still is under the authority of the leadership. Leadership role was given to man even within the body of Christ. Doesn't mean, it doesn't demean that their abilities, their education, their intelligence, it's just the role and function of God's design. Where does it cross the line? Uh, when a woman takes the role of authority over a man to teach doctrine. That is where it crosses the line, and that's where Paul makes it crystal clear in 1 Timothy 2. I forbid that a woman would teach or exercise or usurp in the original authority over man. So the role of the teaching and instruction in the body of Christ is given to men. That role. It's just the function that God, part of his design. So any roles that are carried out within the body of Christ, it's all done under the male ordained leadership that God has given the church. doesn't make them any better. It's just the standard and the design of authority and structure 
that God has ordained for the body of Christ. So a woman can be, uh, I talked to a woman that was um, down at Grace Community Church. And she was the administrator of the worship department. And I thought, are you the administrator? She goes, yes. Under the authority of Clayton Erb. Clayton Erb was the pastor over the worship team. They have an orchestra and choir, and they have hundreds of people involved in that ministry. She was an administrator. She had her master's in music. Very talented, very skilled, and very intelligent woman. She gave me a lot of good information in regards to worship, philosophy of worship, and all that. And yet, when I asked her about the authority structure, she said, I'm in this role under the authority of Clayton Irv, the pastor, and I just carry out the administrative duties under his direction. So, you know, that's a big role. I mean, there were hundreds of people in that worship team, yet she was under the authority of the pastor and the assistant pastor, which were overseeing that ministry. So we have to understand that it doesn't, that isn't a demeaning uh, essence of woman at all. It should never demean or cause a woman to think that somehow they're not good enough or capable enough. Like I mentioned earlier, many times women are more capable than men. I hate to admit that, though. But they are. I shouldn't say that. I was being facetious. I want to just close with a quote here. God created both men and women. The first woman was created from man, but since that time, every woman has been created through a woman. Every man, excuse me, has been created through a woman. For as woman originates from man, this is later on in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, so also the man has birth through the woman. Most importantly, all things originate from God. So as we consider the distinction, the role distinction between men and women, the first woman was created out of man. But since that time, all man was created and given birth out of woman. So when we think about authority and function, think about this. The woman has the most significant role in teaching and instructing children, young men, up into adulthood. She exercises that role as a mother in conjunction under the authority of the father, and they're most influential on any man throughout history. That's why when Paul was talking about Timothy, he gave great uh, encouragement from that of Timothy's mother and his grandmother. The influences, the godly influences they had upon Timothy. So we should in no way ever think that the role of mother is somehow uh, subservient in any way. That's a very significant role. And as mothers, they have the unique and indispensable role of training and developing boys. They're all shaped by their mothers from conception. Think about that. So, as we consider this, he's given uh, women 
are given to men as helpmeets to completion of, and men are given as authority over, and together they glorify God. That's the whole purpose of God bringing woman to man. Now, that's in Christ. And as we'll look at later, that doesn't mean that every individual gets married. It doesn't mean that there won't be widow or widowers. It doesn't mean any of those things. That's not talking about singleness. That's talking about in the context of the family unit. We'll discuss singleness a little bit later on, which I'm glad that's one of the reasons I want the youth here, because I'm anxious to discuss those things and answer questions. Okay, is there any questions as to the distinction being made here between role and essence, or function and essence of man and woman from the divine order? Okay, good. If there is any questions, don't hesitate to talk to me later or bring a question next week. We're going to continue next week and... What I want to look at next week is examine the role of the husband. Husbands, please don't shy away. Men don't shy away. Youth don't shy away because I'm going to address specifically the youth. As we formulate these ideas and concepts of the roles of husband and wife, to have biblical understanding of that is essential in marriage. I wish I would have had that. I wasn't a believer Neither was Marshall when we got married. Later on, after we were saved, it took me years to learn what that role was. And I think it's essential that we all come to that understanding, no matter where we're at in life. Because we're going to be able to encourage, to counsel. Some of these women just got back from the counseling seminar this weekend. I'm so thankful for that. Because they will be able to be used of God to minister to others the Word of God. And as we understand the principles of authority and submission, and we understand the role of husband and wife and children, it brings the whole essence of family into that harmony that God designed. Now, it doesn't matter where things are at, what the family structure is, whether it's fractured or Anything, we still need to understand some biblical essence of what God has called us to in this divine design order that he has created. Father, we just thank you this morning for your word. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would uh, solidify these things in our hearts and minds that we might be able to obey your word in being submissive, first of all, to you into your word, that we might be obedient to carry out our roles of submission and authority in lordship to you and your word. We just give you thanks, and I just pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.